0: All right, I'm recording for Contrarians Corner for Buckaro. I told you to
1: record right as I need to pop a top, so I apologize, <laughs> Julio. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as always, in every episode by my buddy, my co-host, my co-pilot down the path of the contrary, Julio Oliveira. Julio, how are you doing on this gorgeous Sunday afternoon? I know you and I are both one step closer to immortality as we speak right now, but uh, just generally speaking, how are you feeling?
0: It's both one step closer to immortality and one step closer to mortality, I guess. We're like (laughs) right there on the edge. Uh, as As we speak... We are, I guess, halfway through the process of editing the Showgirls episode, which, honestly, I hadn't thought about Showgirls since we recorded it, and so I've been reliving that conversation and getting agitated again. Uh,
1: Typically... Uh, When our episodes drop, I know it might sound egotistical, but just to make sure it sounds good and that what we're putting out to the world fits in line with what I want it to be, I usually re-listen to our episodes in full length. I'm sorry, but I will not be doing that with Showgirls because it's just going (laughs) to – I want to be done with that movie and move on with my life.
0: (laughs) Move on to Crash, bigger and better things.
1: Well, I I don't think that – crash will make me quite as angry. I don't think that um, James Spader leaves every scene in that movie in a huff, so I'll be able to tolerate it a little bit more. (laughs) But there will be no stripping, nor will there be sexual gratification gained from car wrecks today as we are going, I was going to say south of the border, but we got to go way south of the American border for this. (laughs) We're going to South America uh, for Baccarat, which Julio, how did we come into? Uh, how did this movie come across our desk? I guess I should ask.
0: Well, this is a uh, patron demand, a PD, <laughs> since we are, since we just like to abbreviate everything that's patron related. Uh, this comes from Paul, Filmbusters Paul, who uh, I guess they covered this movie on their podcast. Uh, I think I mentioned this last episode, and uh, they. I don't know if they liked it or not, but they really appreciated the fact that they went in knowing nothing about it. And so they wanted us to experience it exactly the same way. Uh, I don't know about you, Alex. I was able to just basically walk in blind and not do uh, uh, not do any research, not be spoiled about anything. I, I experienced this movie the way that Paul wanted us to experience it. I went in, as he said, Baccaro row blind.
1: I was going to say there was a caveat as it was an addition to the demand, and it was that we as you mentioned, go into this with uh, little to no knowledge about it. I had Googled it to see, you know, check length, see the cast, see if there was really anyone that I was familiar with. And Udo Kier, as we'll get to, return <laughs> a triumphant return to the Contrarians. But outside of that, um, I read, I think, the first two sentences on the Wikipedia page, which, back Row is a 2019 weird Western film directed by uh, Kleber... Uh, Mondeka, Mondesa, Philo, and Juliano uh, Donez. So that's about as far as I got, and I guess we'll get into this in the second portion of the podcast, if that worked in our favor, if it didn't, going in blind. i um, going to be honest, though, since this was a foreign film, my notes are very limited as uh, obviously having to pay attention to the dialogue, and it's not a movie mm-hmm, either of mm-hmm. us had seen before. Even the foreign films we've done in the past uh, – Foreign to us, I should say. That's that's such an American expression in foreign films. <laughs> like Blue is the Warmest Color, for example, I had seen that movie three or four times going into it so I could still you know, turn away and understand what's going on with this. I found myself uh, just having to hang on to what was going on, mainly to figure out what the fuck this movie was trying to tell me and what was happening with these characters. <laughs> so I'll do my yeah. best to piece together the plot here, but uh, yeah, definitely uh, an interesting... A uh, little instruction for us to go in blind, which is definitely not the norm for what we do.
0: I, I, I had the same, I, I don't know if it's an issue, but yeah, I, basically the same process where every time I had to stop to make a note that was longer than a few words, I had to actually either pause the movie so I could you know, do the note or rewind the movie after I was done with the note because uh, those subtitles, they don't hang out for too long. <laughs> they just move, move really quickly.
1: No, that doesn't. That kind of lends itself to one of our talking points in terms of... I, I rented this on YouTube. Is that how you ended up watching it as well?
0: Uh, I did Amazon Prime, which leads me to... Well, I guess you already knew about Udo Kier. I didn't know about Udo Kier until I rented it on Amazon because that's that's his face on the poster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, uh, so they sell it to you as an Udo Kier movie.
1: Yeah, the fucking poster for this, the old uh, like 60s, 70s... Type It's almost like a horror poster, but with Udo Kier, his circle of life face that's imposed <laughs> over the sunset. It's, you, you, you knew right from the beginning, just seeing that, that he was going to be the bad guy in some incarnation. Also, it's his uh, his God-given name is Udo Kier. He, it's not like he was born with a big babyface push in mind.
0: He didn't have too many options when he decided to go to Hollywood.
1: Exactly. So... Before we get too much further into Baccarat, again, this is The Contrarians. If it's your first time listening, uh, we we do appreciate it. Uh, For those returning listeners, thank you. And uh, give us a moment here while we explain our gimmick, our approach to any and all first-timers. So here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. As our battle cry, we find a movie that is highly rated on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of times time known as Certified Fresh. And then kind of break it down piece by piece and explain uh, maybe why the critics were uh, a bit too far up their own asses on something. Uh, Conversely, we'll find a movie that is rotten, one of those nasty green splotches, usually about 30% and below. And we'll make a case for its positive merit, maybe why people didn't understand it. Again, as Julio mentioned, one of our uh, wonderful patrons uh, selected this episode, demanded that we cover it uh, as part of our Patreon subscription, that's kind of an option that's open to you. That's something that you can have, but always has to kind of fall in line with what we do. So Paul was gracious enough to select uh, this relatively recent film that has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So it definitely falls in the certified fresh wheelhouse. So in this first half of the podcast, we'll kind of be breaking down this film and uh, explaining maybe why it was a bit overhyped upon initial release and who exactly these cans people are and what this palm d'or is, and uh, who do they who they think they are? Who did they ever beat?
0: We're going to be talking about uh, how this movie does not live up to the rest of Udo Kier's filmography.
1: <laughs> if any listeners want to hear how we really feel about uh, Baccarat Julio, they just have to hang around for the second portion of the podcast.
0: That's correct. You stick around for Real Talk, which is where we just go unfiltered with the truth no more pretending that it's rotten or fresh we tell you exactly how we feel um this time we didn't just go blind into baccarat the movie we're also gonna go blind into real talk because i have no idea how alex feels about this movie and he doesn't know how i feel about it either other than uh i guess we we feel a certain way about subtitles
1: yes yeah there wasn't even like a little text exchange about this one so
0: going in fully blind to this. All right. So before we get into Contrarians Quarter, I'm going to lead, as usual, with some fresh quotes because it's a fresh movie pulled directly from the Rotten Tomatoes website. Uh, We're going to start with Carla Hay from Culture Mix, who says, Baccarat is a slow burn of a film that leads up to an intense and violent confrontation that is part Western pulp, part fierce social commentary on the evils of racist colonialism. I mean, without getting too much into it yet, but Alex, did you feel the commentary? Or were you too, too occupied trying to decipher the subtitles?
1: I did, and this is going to legitimately upset some people, I would venture to guess, but I felt a lot of parallels between this and the Green Inferno for the commentary that it was trying to make.
0: <laughs> Always controversial when you bring uh, Eli Roth into the mix.
1: I mean, Udo Kier didn't try to eat anybody, so that was good.
0: <laughs> um. Uh, next, Brian Viner from the Daily Mail UK: The strange but compelling Bacurau, plunging us into the hinterlands of Brazil, is the kind of modern-day western that some Peckinpah might have made if he were a Brazilian and B, alive.
1: I was wondering how long it would take into this for Sam Peckinpah's name to be brought up. So there you go. Yeah,
0: Peckinpah's been at the Contrarians once. Uh
1: but it's been it's been quite a while. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I guess he, he's. In spirit, he's coming back today. Sean Burns from The the Artery, but it's spelled capital A, capital R, capital T, and then Eerie, so the art, Eerie. Uh, Sean Burns says, We might all be off the map at the moment, but this movie reminds us that we've still got each other. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I okay, so I understand that this... Even though it's a 2019 movie, I'm guessing it's a 2020 release, right? Otherwise, his comment about all of us being off the map at the moment doesn't make any sense. Uh, And actually, yeah, this is dated April 3rd, 2020.
1: Yes, the uh, democratic hoax known as the (laughs) coronavirus heavily impeded and uh, disrupted its uh, North American release. So I think its availability, specifically in North America, has been fairly limited, so that would make sense.
0: All right. Well, we're off the map. We're still off the map if you go by just the numbers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, Edwin Arnodin from Asheville Movies, one of the most hyper-political films in recent memory and one that transcends borders with its potent universal message. Don't mess with honest, hardworking people. Uh, it's one
1: way to interpret it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right, Alex, take us into Contreras Corner.
1: So, Bacarau, again, um, we're going to stick with Philo and Juliano for the directing pair here because I don't want to butcher their names each time. But uh, Kleber, uh, Mendoza, Philo, and Juliano uh, Dornelis. So, yeah, Julio and Philo. Juliano, excuse me. Uh, Mr. Philo, my brief research on him indicates that this is the first movie he made as part of a pair so branching out i mean you gotta pool resources when you got udo kier on <laughs> on deck you gotta make sure that all the ducks are in a row and they got all the money you can need it was originally released looks like it premiered at Cannes film festival on may 15th of 2019 and as i said the actual release for it's been staggered since um, couldn't really find much in the way of a budget, but I did see a box office return of $3.5 million. I assume that factors in internationally. It was selected to compete for the Palme d'Or at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, and it won the jury prize. I mean, I think we can calm down. That's a bit much, <laughs> as it's a movie that culminates with multiple beheadings.
0: <laughs> but it's kind of uh, just that art house uh, catnip. Artnip, as, as you would call it. There you go. You know, it's set in a in a country that's not the U.S. And it deals in, in a sideways manner with, uh, I guess, sociopolitical issues. So, of course, the critics are going to lap it up. The jury at, at the festival, any festival, they're going to be like, this is important. But also, it's entertaining because there's gore. Give them all the prizes.
1: There's a flying saucer <laughs> and boobs. <laughs> Uh, any guess as to what won the Palme d'Or in 2019? You may not know it off the top of your head, but once you hear it, it's pretty obvious.
0: Uh, marriage story?
1: <laughs> Fuck off. It was Parasite.
0: Oh, yeah, of course. So this is the
1: story of the small village in Brazil named Bacarau. Uh, they are south about an hour south of C- Sierra Verde, which is, I guess, from what I picked up, kind of the the biggest harboring city. I'm sorry, Julio, before we even got into that, it took us three minutes to get this movie started. Yep. Uh, Did you notice how many fucking production studios and different like studio logos there were at the beginning of the signatures is the word I was looking for? It's somewhere
0: between 20 and 100.
1: (laughs) I I stopped counting at seven. I was just like, (laughs) what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Took us three minutes to get the movie started. Uh, Not a good sign
0: at all. And then I have to read for the next two hours? Come on, man. (laughs) It's, it's like you said, it doesn't just happen. You need to pull your resources. In this case, the resources of numerous studios.
1: So yeah, as I mentioned, the fictional town of Baccarat, it's municipality is the technical term for uh, Sierra Verde. It's a place that's clearly uh, impoverished people there, uh, not quite third world country conditions because they do have cell phones and they do have regular shipments of water and food. However... Clearly uh, a desolate place to live, and based on the the phones they're using and also the title screen <laughs> in the beginning, it says a few years from now, which I don't know if that – when the
0: fuck – when does that even mean? <laughs> exactly. They, we don't even know when the movie happens. so like, what do we know what now is? Give me at least the model of the iPad that they're using so I can kind of get an idea. It, it's really weird, um, and I don't know if that was kind of their, their way of getting around the COVID pandemic. You know, as in, like, they didn't want us to wonder why people are not wearing masks. And they're like, this isn't the future. <laughs> not so far ahead in the future that there's flying cars or anything, but a few years from now when things go back to normal. So at least 2022.
1: <laughs> it's what a lot of places are going to look like. That's what DC is going to look like in 2022. <laughs> so it's a yeah, a small village. We are introduced to kind of a handful of characters. I, I have a hard time. You think you meet a main character, but then you're not entirely sure, and then it'll switch on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for example, I would say I thought originally the Teresa character, played by uh, Barbara uh, Colin, uh, Colin. I do apologize again if I mispronounce that. I thought Teresa was the main character, and then it kind of switched to Pacote and – then there's uh, Dominguez, the doctor that's kind of popping in and out throughout it. So it, it's it's hard to focus, Julio. And this, again, we're in the first 15 minutes of this movie.
0: Well, It's also – here's the thing. None of them are Udo Kier. And I, I, like I said, in, <laughs> when I loaded the movie on Amazon Prime – It was Udo Kier's face on the on the poster for it, you know, for the press play uh, display. No one else. And I just the the first half of the movie is Udo less. And I just I was just distracted because I was like, at what point does he come in? And obviously, far be it for me to assume uh, on the the extent of the talents of Udo Kier, but I'm like, he doesn't. He does he speak Portuguese? Because he's gonna stand out if he <laughs> comes in at some point trying to, you know, he, he's gonna pretend to be Brazilian. So it was just very distracting, and I don't blame you. I also thought that Teresa was the main character because we spent the first at least ten minutes of the movie with her as she arrives mm-hmm. into town. We see things from her point of view. She seems to be like the, the linchpin uh, that the movie is going to revolve around. She even tells uh, – she's like, hey, do you want to fuck later? Which is clearly the kind of thing that you say when it's your movie. <laughs> when you demand sex, that means that you're you're driving this, this plot. Uh, you're the captain now. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh,
1: yeah, and then she – like the story that begins with her is more – her introduction into the story, the reason she's there, she comes to the village of Bacrout and brings, like, medicine. And it's never explained where she got it. It's vaccines and shit that's going to help them from snake bites, polio, etc. And it's basically, it's still, you know, it's got the, the dry ice steam coming off of it. So she clearly, like, stole this from somewhere. And it doesn't explain that. Moreover, we're just... It's like, oh, forget about that. Don't worry about it. We gotta worry about Carmelita's funeral here. <laughs> That's what pulls the whole village together in the beginning is this monolithic matriarch, like omnipotent power over the village of Bakrau named Carmelita has passed away. And they've all gathered together for her funeral. Now, was she like Thanos or something? Because as soon as she dies, everything just falls apart for this village.
0: <laughs> well, We're going to jump all the way to the end, almost, Alex. It's my
1: only attempt. I'm going to make it a Marvel reference for you, Julio, on this episode.
0: (laughs) Well, Alex, uh, Marvel references are very 2020. It's 2021. You're supposed to reference uh, the Snyder Cut from now on.
1: So generally speaking, let me revise that. Was Carmelita Superman (laughs) or Jared Leto? Because as soon as she dies, the whole village falls apart. Uh,
0: Well, so jumping all the way to the end. Because I, I have a, a burning question, which I guess is important to answer now. Is she the woman that shows up at the end uh, when yes. Udo Kier gets captured? Okay, so I guess she is Cavill then. Henry Cavill. <laughs> uh, she is Superman. Because she comes back from the dead to
1: save the day. She's the ghost of Tom Joad. The... Who's the ghost in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies? That's going to bother me now. Jeffrey Rush? Yeah, what's his character's name though? The movie's not called "The Curse of <laughs> Jeffrey Rush." What's the character's he's, name? He's
0: Barbosa, and the movie's not called "The Curse of Barbosa" either. <laughs> so,
1: this Carmelita that passes away—clearly, I mean, this movie does deal with some supernatural, religious, what have you, some afterlife questions, and the the idea of spirits and whatnot. But Carmelita. Great, not just a great Warren Zevon song, but also a presence <laughs> that stays with Baccarat. Because there's characters for the duration of the movie that say, uh, you know, the little kids say, you know, don't run into Carmelita. Like, I guess she's, I don't know if she was the Pope or what have you, but this person <laughs> dies, brings the whole village together, and from that point on, the spirit of Carmelita looms over Baccarat. And like Julio said, spoiler alert, she kind of shows back up at the end of the movie to... I don't know if she just sounds the alarm to get Udo Kier caught or what it is, but <laughs> she's definitely there. So this town is, as we mentioned, a municipality of Cerro Verde, which the mayor of, I guess you would call that a city, is a gentleman by the name of Tony Jr. The, who the Brazilian
0: we, Ted Cruz.
1: Yes. That's, the, that's a pretty good analogy there. And he comes down to speak to the people of Baccarat, and this is kind of... You'd say this was maybe 30 minutes into the movie or so because this funeral procession takes up a good chunk of time and I mean just cards on the table here Julio the first this movie is about 130 minutes long the first 75 minutes of this movie are just building ambiance and building tension wouldn't you say
0: that's a way of saying it the other way of saying it is it's that it meanders for i don't know 20 to 30 minutes trying to find uh, a protagonist a character that can that we can follow that that has any sort of story because teresa disappears after the the funeral she kind of fades into the background and then uh, i guess we follow Pacotti for a little bit cuz he he I guess Mm -hmm. it's it's some sort of criminal, renowned criminal. He has videos on YouTube showing his greatest hits. Uh,
1: Yeah, but his greatest hits are him just gunning people down in cold (laughs) blood. It's one of the... He's he's like a Guy Ritchie type character that, you know, has retired from the line of violence. But the thing is, it's not really played comedically like a Guy Ritchie movie would be. It's just, oh, I don't do that anymore. And then you learn quickly what he did was just murder people very violently in the middle of the street. And... Yeah, with Pakodi and um, Teresa, you know, she wants to shack up with him there in the beginning. I-, I at first thought like, okay, am I supposed to like emotionally relate to this guy or what's going on? But again, they don't give you much time to to process or run with those feelings.
0: You're right about the the guy Richie. That like, guy Richie knows how to do it, right? You you introduce at uh, this. I guess, sort of charming killer. And then when you show the kills, you know, there's the, the music and the the skewed camera angles and all that stuff. But no, here, it's like they show you a cold-blooded murder, <laughs> several of them in succession, and it looks pretty, it's pretty gruesome. So instantly you're turned off by Pacote. He's not your, your hero, even though I no. guess by all accounts in, in the movie, he is kind of a heroic figure. And then, yeah, the, the, the movie just kind of meanders. You, you, you know what I felt I was missing? Uh, And this would have taken a lot less time. You needed something like uh, that opening number in Beauty and the Beast where Belle is just walking around the town and she's singing and introducing all the characters. (laughs) That takes like maybe five minutes. It's a long song, but it's much shorter than this 30 to 40 minutes of Baccarat introducing everybody in Baccarat. Uh, You just needed... uh, Teresa just walking down the street, and it's like, there's the baker, and there's the the murderer, and there's the crazy doctor, the alcoholic doctor, and and so on.
1: And there's the guy that waters his plants nude and just has (laughs) one of the guns from Looper to shoot people that come to his house.
0: Yeah, a lot of uh, Brazilian dong in this movie.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of nudity overall, but yeah, there was... An abundance of wiener that I was not expecting. <laughs> that that Paul should have at least given us a heads up on that. Not to be homophobic or anything. It's not that. It's just the nudity. Wiener in always takes you by surprise. Yeah, you, you
0: were not used to it. Uh, it. It may even. I mean, we you know man ass usually just shocks us, uh, and then yes,
1: it, and, and usually leads us to arguing about the merit of the MPAA. With this, <laughs> it was just like Paul. You didn't tell me there was just a lot of wiener and boobs in this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know it, it's... It occurs to me that if this was an American movie, if this was directed by, I don't know, fucking Kevin Smith, it would be <laughs> we would be appalled at the depiction of a South American town, right? Everybody fucking oh, yeah. walking around naked, their criminals are YouTube stars, people just kinda losing their shit at these communal uh funerals, wakes. So it's kind of weird when you see it coming that way from the source like this is a Brazilian a couple of Brazilian filmmakers depicting their own country like this and uh mm-hmm. without jumping too much ahead it amounts to this weird Flex I don't know if you read it this way but you know they're saying like yeah so this is this is us and uh we will fuck you up if you come over yeah I don't know it, it's just surely there was a better way of uh I guess delivering that message, if that message even needed to be delivered, I don't know how how often uh, America is meddling with uh, with Brazil. I guess that's that's part of the conversation here.
1: Yeah, but exactly to your point, if this was an American filmmaker, people would just be like, uh, like you said, appalled at the idea of it and the the local brothel that's there yep. with. That, again, just abundance of nudity. And also, did you notice they, the banner they put outside of the brothel was all Asian women? I tried to figure out if there was any significance to that at all. You know,
0: I did notice it, and then it, but it didn't register uh, because I was still like trying to catch my bearings. But yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah, because the whole first... You could say the first act of this is just setting up scenery and setting and establishing characters but none of it points to a clear indication of where we're going or who we're following
0: yeah we we don't know what kind of movie this is we don't know what the story is until Udo Kier shows up I can't stop bringing him up but you know he's Udo Kier I mean that's the story
1: of his career honestly Suspiria (laughs) any you know famous Udo Kier movie nothing really makes sense until he enters the fray that's the problem that's why uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween sucked because he cut Udo Kier out of the theatrical release everyone had to be like no but you got to see the director's cut (laughs) So, Baccarat, in comes as Julio so eloquently put it, the Brazilian Ted Cruz, uh, Tony Junior, the mayor of Serra Verde. He obviously, like most politicians, is a corrupt asshole, and he needs the cooperation from the people of Baccarat. He needs to make them think, you know, that I care about him. So he brings them, you know, food and books. But of course, the food is expired. The books are tattered. You know, most of them aren't even on his spine. And uh, he brings medicine, but as the local village doctor um, Dominguez explains it's um, it is a mood suppressor that they pose as a painkiller. Now I do believe that is kind of an issue a pan- uh, an epidemic across Brazil is uh, medications and faulty drugs that lead to addiction and things like that. So there can be potentially some of your statement but the bigger issue here is the corrupt, Tony Jr. has – there's been a massive dispute with the people of Baccarat because he's dammed all the water upstream, and this, of course, means that Baccarat has no running water, so they have to get like a weekly shipment of it via truck. And it just seems like the people of Baccarat are a pain in the ass for Tony Jr., the corrupt politician that he is, when all they really want is a a fair chance to live. Hmm. I wonder if this will come back up at any point. (laughs) oh he's up for uh, reelection that's why he goes there in the first place because he's on the campaign trail and trying to shake hands and kiss babies type of shit
0: but also he offers technology that we don't have here in the state so I found it very unlikely that this was happening in the real world I guess it's a few years from now but uh he says that he has this little device that will allow you it's like a uh it's cancer retina and that way you can vote just through this device instead of having to go vote wherever it is that they they hold their elections uh weird
1: man that sounds <laughs> that legit sounds like a qAnon thing like they <laughs> they you know they scan the retinas of all these dead people and that's how joe biden won the presidency
0: <laughs> <year. laughs> well here's my bigger problem and that is that there is uh maybe maybe if you're an actual brazilian citizen it would be easier for you watching this movie to discern what is real? What is science fiction? And what is fantasy? Right now, yeah. as, as an ignorant uh, American viewer who is already kind of treating everything from the beginning as this foreign experience, right? Just from the moment that you see Teresa and the guy like driving into town carrying the water, I'm like, this is this is very much away from the reality that I experience. A, a yeah. one week snowstorm fucked us up. So th- that's <laughs> we are. We already have to work extra hard to get into this, this mindset of how this Brazilian uh, village town lives. But then, so then you introduce something like this weird retina scanner, and I don't know if he's lying or not because this the world is really weird, right? In a couple scenes, we're gonna see uh, something that looks like a UFO. And I'm like, okay, so is that the kind of movie that is this a science fiction movie about aliens? Uh and and I think actually before Brazilian Ted Cruz shows up, they mentioned that uh they can't find a town in any maps. And I'm like, oh, so is it a ghost story? I, it was so hard to nail what kind of movie this was, and not in a good way. You know, when we watched something like Under the Silver Lake, there were a lot of questions that that I had, mm-hmm. but I was always able to at least know that I had my my feet firmly planted on a very specific reality. I knew the genre. I knew the the, the things that were being referenced. Uh, but here, I just, I was at a loss. I'll fully admit that part of it is on me because, you know, maybe I should be more cultured. So I should, so watching a movie from Brazil doesn't feel like such an alien experience to me. But, but I also think that there's something to be said for accessibility. And maybe the filmmaker should have done a better job at, at specifying what is real and what isn't in this world.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and to build onto the scumbaggery of the mayor, it's just, it's the most clear the movie's become in saying, bad guy, this is the bad guy, as they have him, doesn't he take one of the local prostitutes, like, against her will?
0: Basically, and he's like, just put her on my tab, Uh, which, you know, when you have a tab at the brothel, you have a problem.
1: (laughs) Well, going back to just what you said, Julio, it's my next note here, one of the local... Uh, from the farmer's market there in Baccarat, a man's driving back to his home that night, and we see this flying saucer <laughs> that looks to be about the size of, uh, I don't know, maybe like a manhole cover or something like that, about that size. So it's not like one of your big you know, 1950s, 60s drive-in movie flying saucer, but it's definitely jarring. <laughs> Again, how far in the future are we? When is now? And when, when have we gone to, because we eventually find out that it's just a fucking drone, but this first shot here and the guy is looking at it like it's a, a bird (laughs) flying over him. Like I was waiting for him to take his hat off and start swatting at it. Uh, (laughs) But again, everything eventually gets explained in this movie, but when things are initially introduced, there's just this weirdness that shrouds it. That feels that it's there just to kind of jar the audience. And then it feels cowardly that they pay it off at the end and actually explain it.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is not David Lynch where he is just fucking with your mind because that's the point of the movie. Uh, no, here they're just fucking with your head because they they want to throw you off the fact that there's not a story here yet. Uh, they even add the the UFO sounds that little drone when he's when it's flying so you believe that it's an alien (laughs) yep yeah uh i i legit thought that this was okay i'm like i get it now this movie is about alien abductions and that's why the town doesn't show up in the map and that's why people are so weird because they they kind of live their lives in i guess in constant fear constant interaction with aliens you know and that's why this guy is not the least bit surprised when a flying saucer (laughs) almost knocks him off his motorcycle but that wasn't the case
1: So, from weird to bad, things across the city, or the village, excuse me, keep posing themselves as obvious issues. Uh, First of all, we see the water truck as it reaches town has some unexplained bullet holes in it, so it begins leaking. And water is the source of life, so that's not good. Secondly, uh, a whole... Horde of horses come clopping. The subtitle said in parentheses clopping, so I had to make sure to write that note down. Uh, clipping and clopping all across back row. It's, a, it's a, a herd that came from a farm uphill or down the road or what expression you want to use. Everyone seems to recognize right away who they belong to, so two localers set off um, to find out w- why the horses got out and what's going on. There's trouble afoot, by golly. Uh,
0: Nobody should own that many horses. That was my thought. (laughs) It's like like 200 horses galloping through town, and somebody's instantly like, oh, those are from Johnny down the street. And I was like, well, of course. Yeah, they immediately
1: know where they're from. I I guess, yeah, they travel in a pack, which is understandable, but I don't know why they just decided to march through the village. (laughs) At at dawn, we ride type thing, I guess. Uh, (laughs) inner Intersecting with uh, the two localers going up to the farm to see, you know, trying to return the horses and see what happened, uh, two dirt bike riders wearing the loudest, most garish outfits you could think of. I, I guess what we come to find out is that they wanted to present themselves as tourists, and I guess what they thought that meant is they should wear the most conspicuous <laughs> outfits possible.
0: Yeah, they overshot the, the mark there.
1: <laughs> they missed the They missed the mark a little bit. Uh, But they are two localers, as they try to describe themselves, or tourists, um, but they're native to Brazil because they do speak Portuguese. And they ride their dirt bikes through town, and they go into Bacarau, and they plant um, the female. It's a male and female. The female plants this jammer, pretty much, in the local store that blocks any and all cell phone signals from coming in. And then they leave pretty hastily. Pacote is immediately hip to their jive type thing he he comes up and he's just kind of like smiling and like oh how's it going nice bike and they they're talking about how we can't get any cell phone signal here and he goes funny we always have signal here <laughs> and he's got that smile on his face like one day I will kill you
0: it's a smile every person in those YouTube videos saw before they got shot <laughs>
1: it was the last thing they saw but he he knows what's going on he knows that they're there potentially in a reconnaissance mission or there to create issues uh, because they get there they stick out they leave really quickly meanwhile the localers that went to the farm Picote already told them to come back though because when the when the what did he figure out that was wrong it was the bullet holes in the water truck he's like something's not right so he tries to get these guys to come home <laughs> they don't do it they go to the farm they this is like your typical horror movie type trope where they see these dead bodies and then they just keep going further into the home and oh no more dead bodies let's see what's going on over here <laughs> let's go
0: inside the house uh, i just i just laughed because it's it's just so weird that that's not a big leap of logic you see that somebody shot the water truck and then you go hmm something is wrong Let's, everybody, red alert. I mean, that's that, that's just a natural reaction. But uh, how
1: inept is the guy who drives the truck? They're like, there's holes in it. What? Yeah. Like, someone had to shoot his truck and it's been leaking water. and he, well, I don't know. Like, was he just jamming Springsteen too loud and didn't hear it?
0: <laughs> he didn't notice that, that the load kept getting lighter and lighter. How long has it been leaking water?
1: The best would have been when he opens the door to get out and just a cascade of beer cans fall out. <laughs> and he's just like, oh, I didn't notice anything. But the gentleman that went to the the farm, a lot of people have been killed there. It's a horrific scene, so they're coming back. They need to get back to the village to report what they found. They don't have any cell signal. Sadly, they cross paths with our two dirt bike riders.
0: In the remake, that would have been played by Jonah Hill and Emma Stone.
1: Maybe like a Jason Segel more, because the guy was kind of tall and lanky. And the (laughs) woman... I mean, Emma Stone, I I just, I don't know. I don't know if I could see Emma Stone killing somebody.
0: But that's why it's so awesome. (laughs) (laughs)
1: because that's what happens here our two loudly dressed dirt bike riders just take out a gun and shoot these two gentlemen and it's we then go at to the perspective of the ufo which we find is a drone and it's filming what's going on here and
0: it speaks english bless the lord
1: it it does then that's when i said game changer um (laughs) Okay, so Julio, at this point, it feels as good a time to any to bring into question. You know, this is described as a western in some circles, and obviously, Peck and Paul came up earlier. Now, do you buy into that? Because obviously, the overlap or the idea here would be that these these two writers, these two out of towners, come in and you know kill the localers to send a message. Um, but it's if that's the case, it's shrouded in like unintentional comedy because. <laughs> Dirt bikes and neon-colored clothing, to me, are at no point ever analogous for a Western of any sort. So do you buy into that this is a a Western with a modernized coat of paint on it?
0: Um, I do not. I do not because it's not taking place in America. (laughs) That's that's it. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. I don't want to be too protective of a genre that I don't even care that much for. But a Western takes place in the American West with cowboys. It doesn't take place in Brazil, which is a perfectly fine country, but you know that's not the American West, and those are not cowboys. Those are, right around this time we find out it's just a mix of uh, Brazilian spies and American Trump supporters, I guess, led by... uh, Yeah, we
1: have in all caps my notes here, Udo (laughs) Kier comes into the fold, but this is, yeah, after these two young men are gunned down uh, in the middle of the road, this is where we find... Um, a group of, I, I guess, Americans. Obviously, Udo Kier is from Germany. Um, but he's not a the Nazi, two...
0: as, as he will make sure to <laughs> to clear oh, that yeah. up. Uh,
1: and then the two dirt bike riders are Brazilians, uh, as they, but they say they're from a, a rich, more westernized, Americanized type uh, of village. But the rest of them are exactly, like you said, just crazy white people that have a massive hard-on for guns. And, man, they casted those people to look exactly like your... <laughs> You know, everyone in this scene, I know has a tweet that starts with I'm not racist, but
0: the 95% of them are currently arrested for storming the capital.
1: Yes, the the only ones not were the ones that didn't make it, the two Brazilians <laughs> cuz they get gunned down here in this scene. Yeah, it, it's this long, you use the word meandering earlier. The scene is several minutes long and you think you're going to finally get some exposition on what the fuck is going on here and like I was hanging on to every second of this, being like, "All right, Udo Kier is going to explain any second now." And the scene just goes and goes, <laughs> and then nothing's explained, and the two Brazilian, you know, intels are killed, shot and killed at the table there by the fucking white people.
0: It's re- really weird because the movie stops basically so this sequence can take place. Uh, this is the movie grinding to a halt so that you would think uh, we get some exposition and some very clear. Uh, explanation on what's going on what's been happening so far and what will happen over the next hour we're like right at the middle point this was the time to do it and they had the perfect excuse because we are all conditioned to expect a clear explanation nobody was going to blame them if Udo Kier just pulled up a a whiteboard and started pointing at you know the things that were going to happen and this this was the time to explain things but that doesn't really happen like you said they they kind of talk in circles around what the movie is about and around what they're doing, but they never say it specifically. They leave it up to us to connect the dots. And like like I was saying, we're already too confused to just take on that responsibility of making the movie make sense. We really needed the filmmakers to do it for us in this case. Uh, I could tell that they were bloodthirsty Americans. I could tell that they wanted to kill people, but I couldn't really mm-hmm. figure out why. Why this town... Yeah,
1: <laughs> Yeah. They kept arguing about points. Like a, who gets to kill? That's why they're mad at the Brazilian biker couple because they killed. They they weren't supposed to kill anybody, and it takes away their potential. You know, quote unquote points. But again, point of this story, nothing's explained. We just know that they're there <laughs> to kill these people of Bacaral. They have time to turn back because, as this movie will show, it was a an ill advised decision. Just death haunting the city now, and Pacote realizes what must be done. You know, and he. Like Wolf of Wall Street or something, when they call in the big guns, <laughs> he has this conversation with one of the localers, and they're like, well, I don't know if you want to do that. Uh, he just mentions the name- uh, Lunga? L- Lunga? Lunga? Yeah. Yeah, Lunga, who, his name is mentioned at the beginning, he's a wanted criminal, right? Mm-hmm. He Like, on one of the PSAs goes out that he's wanted. So- you know, it's unleashed the Kraken type shit if we can make another Pirates of the Caribbean reference in this episode. In the first half of this episode. I'm going to have to stock up and make some Kira Knightley Orlando Bloom <laughs> joke in the second half now. But it's on. We got to go get Lunga. And he pulls up. And Lunga lives uh, on the edge of the dam in like a radio tower or some shit. And he has two of his henchmen with him there. And Pocote pulls up with the two gentlemen that were killed by the biker couple. And... And one of them is the cousin of one of the henchmen and basically it seems like at some point in time Lunga was a villager and then got cast out and kind of is just this townie. He's like a ninth year senior <laughs> that just kind of hangs out and buys everyone beer type thing and he's there and he basically tells him hey we're in trouble and we need your help. Uh, and... He's really bad at negotiating cuz all he says is I want food and that's about the <laughs> it, the extent of it. He doesn't ask for money or you know the ability to live there again and have, you know, clean water. He's just like give me some spam and eggs and we'll call it even.
0: Were you uh underwhelmed by the reveal of of Lunga? Because like you said, yeah, we've we've heard about him throughout the first half of the movie and he's You'd expect him to be
1: like a bloater from fucking Last of Us or like some uh, a big daddy right. in BioShock. He looks like a <laughs> child. Mess- <laughs> he's he like it, it reminded me of rufio in hook because you know how they build that up and like um robin williams has in his mind you know what's going on and it's just this kid that comes out with a, a funky hairdo and I'm like what <laughs> Okay, so tell me if I'm crazy or not, because obviously I didn't have time to watch this movie twice. When we meet Lunga here, he has short hair, but then when he shows up in the city, he's got a long mullet, yep. right? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. He, he dresses okay. up for his big return to town. That's what I assume, because he also has the, the, the funky boots. And uh, somebody, one of the localers, mentions, like, oh, man, you look good. Or they make some comment about his appearance.
1: He, he hit the left C button twice on his <laughs> controller to change his attire. <laughs> So he shows up. Yeah, because Lillian and my sister watched it with me, and she's like, wait, did he just have short hair? And then it messed with me the rest of the movie. I was like, did I just not understand that? Pacote clearly has past dealings with these people. As we know, he was also a, a criminal at one point and killed many, many people. And so this feels kind of like a, an O'Needer's moment where they're getting the band back <laughs> together. <'cause, laughs> like, all that was missing was them all putting their hands in the middle.
0: Well, what was missing was... Uh Therese accidentally telling the, the TV director that they were a couple. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, Lunga. Sorry, ladies. He's taken. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so before Lunga and the crew can unveil to the city that they're back, or the town, I keep calling it the city. It's just the township, the, the village, what have you. Before that reveal, we see that in the, the town square, all the villagers are watching on YouTube uh, Pakode's Kills. We already mentioned this. The significance of this particular part. Julio, did you catch that one of the kills here has a Wilhelm scream?
0: No. No, I didn't.
1: Wilhelm, excuse me.
0: Which number know, was it? Wilhelm. Was it number five? Because they're <laughs> they're numbered.
1: I know they're numbered, but I don't know. But he shot one of them and then, Wah! that scream. And I was like, mm, that seems really appropriate for this context. <laughs> you know, I think of Indiana Jones, Star Wars. I know the Wilhelm scream is has spread more than fucking herpes. Uh, but in this conti- particular context, I was just like, why? Why would you add this for any type of comedic or, you know, as I mentioned in the Marriage Story episode, the insider wink and nod to the camera type thing.
0: That's that's uh, how you get the, the festival judges to give you the award. The
1: people at Cannes had to stifle their boner under their pants when that happened. and like, Oh, these directors get it. <laughs> or it's the... Fuck! Who's the director we talked about recently? Uh, Verhoven. It's what they think Americans want to see in movies, <laughs> <laughs> or I guess here in this particular case. Who look
0: here and a Wilhelm scream, and then you got them.
1: And then a couple beheadings. You're good to go. <laughs> but this—he announces that he's brought back Lunga, and he does like a fucking pro wrestler entrance for him. <laughs> he like silences everybody, and he's like, "Ladies and gentlemen." Lunga, and then everyone just kind of turns around, and the shot of his boots clopping through the the dirt, and everyone's like, "Oh my god!" You'd expect him to break out its song at any point here.
0: Well, you wanted like at least the, the their entrance song, right? Which I don't know what yes. what would have been for Lunga, but you know,
1: you're the best.
0: Everything <laughs> <All right. laughs> is some kid rock.
1: Oh yeah, well, American Badass wouldn't work. Devil without a cause. There yeah. you go devil without a cause I'm going platinum (laughs) then Lunga comes out and just fires recklessly into the air (laughs) he's basically given the uh, returning heroes welcome and we kind of get a little bit of idea that he lived there as I said because the local teacher said you were a good writer you should have studied more and like you said someone compliments his looks it's it seems like he was at one time there and protected them but then became too much of a hazard became too dangerous you know the Batman principle gotta cast him (laughs) out now
0: he wasn't the outlaw they needed, but he was the outlaw they deserved.
1: <laughs> this leads into the, the town partying for a night. Lunga's returned. We know that there's trouble on the horizon, but we're just going to enjoy our evening.
0: Alex, I thought that was a funeral. I mean, it's... <laughs> I I But I, I also thought they were partying at first. And now I don't know. Because they... Aren't they at the same time kind of burying the the guys that got killed by...
1: Oh yes. They, they found the two gentlemen and but they're like doing Capoeira and the the Safety brothers came in for a guest directing spot <laughs> because the music and the way this is shot is so inconsistent with the rest of the movie. I don't know. Obviously funerals in different parts of the country, let alone the world are different, so uh I mean nobody was I got dancing the impression n-
0: Nobody that, was dancing at Carmelitas. Uh, funeral at the beginning of the movie so actually you're right that was
1: the loss of like a a higher power to me this is like we lost our men on the front line we must celebrate their lives tonight (laughs) tonight we feast tomorrow business picks up sadly that you know the party has to end abruptly because a group of local children are out playing and they're just kind of being kids Uh, I think the game they're playing is how far out in the dark can you go I'm going to take a flashlight out there and leave it there and then you have to go get it and then take it out further and sadly one of the little boys I think the second or third boy that goes out runs into one of these white people and the dude just guns this little kid down this scene is easily the most tense scene in the movie for me because it's so drawn out and you know the evil that's looming over them. White men. <laughs> exactly. For it to conclude with a, a little boy being gunned down was very harsh and mean-spirited, though. I thought like someone was going to come out and like get the kids and be like, hey, you shouldn't be out here, and then that person gets killed. But for it to be the little boy that gets it and the guy who kills him takes such satisfaction in it,
0: I was just like, come on, dog. What's worse is that this guy doesn't really... You would think that, okay, well, he's such a monster. We're going to see him get it later. And he pretty much, by the end of the movie, he he dies, but he dies off screen. So it's pretty unsatisfying.
1: <laughs> the the upham principle. <laughs> yeah, he dies with the rest of them. That's pretty much how it comes to be. And he doesn't get it any worse for being a child murderer. At midnight that night, the group of insurgents... Mercenaries is basically the best I could think to describe them. They shut off the power for Baccarat, and this is when Lunga has the very prophetic line of, we're under attack. Two localers try to leave the village. They, they're one of the couples that has a car, so they just try to careen out of get to Serra um, Verde. Sadly, they're cut off by two of these mercenaries, one female, one male. Just mercilessly gun them down with machine guns. Just they shoot some each, you know, two dozen times it just goes on and on. And then just crazy white people shit because the woman is turned on by this.
0: Yeah. Uh She doesn't even care that the drone is recording them.
1: Yeah, she literally just they kill this couple and then she says, want to fuck? And then they just start going to town. Uh, my dad walked in. This was the only part of the movie he saw and he was... <laughs> He basically just did like the meme where you, or the Grandpa Simpson meme, where you come in, see what's <laughs> going on, turn around and leave. Because, I mean, he had no context, no other explanation for this movie. And imagine this being the part you see uh, a couple gunned down, the killers immediately start having sex, and then there's a flying saucer circling around. <laughs> How would you explain that to somebody?
0: That's where you go, well, Paul said going blind.
1: <laughs> Next up. Is the Nazi scene that you had referenced, Tulio? Are we dealing with Udo Kier's Oscar clip here, his best supporting actor clip?
0: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a moment, uh, a pretty impressive moment where he flips the table later, but this is—I think this carries more weight.
1: One of the younger killers that's in his unit there is mad about the child getting killed. And this somehow leads to him calling Udo Kier a Nazi, and then Udo Kier just has the very clinical breakdown of, how old are you? He's like 37. He's like, well, I've lived in America for 40 years, so I'm more American than you are. And then he shoots him with his gun, but of course he's wearing a bulletproof vest, so all it really does is take the wind out of him. My main takeaway from this was that none of the actors on that team of mercenaries is qualified to make Udo Kier a sandwich, much less act alongside him.
0: That is an excellent way of putting it. (laughs) It's really... You know, I think that that's the risk of... I mean, I would call it stunt casting. But this is not even stunt casting. I mean, this is actually... They gave him a role. Like, you know, Udo Kier. He comes in late to the movie, but he actually has a part. He has a character. But then, yeah, you throw him in with less seasoned actors, and he can't help it. He makes them look bad. Because he's Udo Kier, and they're not. So... (laughs) Yeah, that was the best thing that could have happened to that guy is getting shot and because that forced him to shut up <laughs> and stop trying to act.
1: They have all basically they were grouped together and they're all in fatigues and they were regrouping and one of the there's two females on the unit and the other one's sleeping there. The reason being tomorrow the hunt's on type thing. And we wake up early, we get some more Brazilian nudity. One of the <laughs> local gentlemen who the first guy that spotted the flying saucer, in fact, is watering his plants. This is like a twisted version of the scene in Pulp Fiction where Butch goes back to get his watch and then <laughs> sees the Pop-Tarts cooking because the Brazilian gentleman is watering his plants while two of the mercenaries are sneaking up. And the it's a male and female. The male in this scene looks like One of Nick Nolte's bastard children from Topeka, Kansas, (laughs) from back in the 48 Hours days. And the female is your prototypical first person to get killed in a (laughs) non-movie. Just way too eager and excited to be there. Has a gun that's way too big for her to operate. So what happens is they think they're going to sneak up on this uh, Brazilian couple in their hut and, you know, just fucking kill them. And um, they're farmers, so when I say hut, I'm not trying to be culturally insensitive. It's literally it that. Is a hut. It's got, yeah, the, the roof of it is um, not quite bamboo, but it's definitely a built of leaves of sorts. It's sort. flammable. Extremely. So uh, this dude... Goes in uh, his home. He's watering his plants. He goes into his kitchen. The two mercenaries think we got him now. So they first of all start setting the roof on fire, and then the dude turns to you know just do the solid snake move where you pow turn around the corner and then shoot somebody. Turns around. I literally yelled at this part because his like three fourths of his head get blown off. This dude has the shotgun from Looper, and this <laughs> Brazilian guy. Dick out completely naked, just guns down these two people. It's fucking insane.
0: well, he he shoots thegnolte's son and then his wife shoots the the woman.
1: Oh, that's right. She just shows up just double cheeked tits out and <laughs> shoots like through the wall so it's even more badass. Obviously, homeboy that got his head shot uh, shot off is that, that you're a dun dada, as Kimbo <laughs> slice would say. He's out of the equation. The female gets shot in the side and she gets her hand blown off, right?
0: Yeah. She she they make a point of having a close up of the hand at some point. Oh
1: well, and then hilariously here too is where it kicks in the few years from now. Cause she has like this Oh yeah. Um this stick that she pulls out. It's like a, a light up stick that's able to translate what they're saying to her. And it's so cold too, cause the guy's just in her face, you know, very calmly speaking Portuguese, and then she translates it and it's do you want to live or die? Um If you couldn't tell by my giddiness in this part, this was my favorite part of the movie because it was in brutal detail the scene of the most comeuppance that the bad guys get. Because, spoiler alert, they all die. (laughs) But this scene in particular was when you realize these mercenaries done fucked with the wrong people.
0: Do you think... What do you think was more expensive? Getting Udo Kier in this movie or the special effects in this sequence?
1: I mean, this fucking flying saucer they have and it looks like an effect from the blob with steve mcqueen <laughs> like it's a it looks like the the poochie thing where it's just this cell that's over the shots that they're doing so the whole time i'm like why does that look so awful and then when i saw this dude's head explode i was like that's why because that's where all the money went <laughs> the studio said look you get the head shot and that's it you're gonna have to you, you can do the flying saucer in ms paint i'm sorry <laughs> that's all we got
0: for you You got to pick your battles.
1: And in this case, uh, Mr. Philo and uh, Juliano definitely picked the right battle. They're like, we will take the head exploding. (laughs) So, this naked couple, dude's dead. They take the female back to town because they're trying to figure out why the hell they're doing this. Right. She ends up eating it. They take her to the local doctor, uh, Dominguez. Do you think Dominguez killed her, or she actually bled out? Because we get the shot of her later, where she's on the operating table, just like almost naked, but bleeding. Uh, she's just covered in blood. Obviously, bled out. And I couldn't really deduce if I thought the doctor killed her, let her die, actually tried to help her, or whatnot.
0: You know, they really. I think that if they wanted to make us think that that Dominguez had just gone off the deep end and killed her, they would have been. More graphic about it It just looked like Shit bled out
1: That's true They probably would have Showed it if they Actually killed her Because they, they don't Shy away from showing How um, savage like That these villagers Can be
0: Yeah They don't shy away From from the gore And they don't shy away From the nudity um, The hunt's on So the rest of the crew
1: Is They've made their way To Baccarat Ominously Kier says This is where Things go wrong Or this is where Things get dicey Something to that effect Did you take that to mean he's done this before? He's tried to insurge upon, he's tried to lead an insurrection on Baccarat?
0: I wasn't sure. I I think, like, in retrospect, you know, having watched the movie all the way to the end, I think that he means that, uh, I mean, not not that he's been to Baccarat before, but that he's done this to other towns. And that usually the day that they go and storm the town is when everybody kind of becomes unpredictable. That uh-huh. was my thought when I, as I was watching the movie. But then, having watched it all the way to the end, I think that he was also maybe alluding that this is when he himself usually goes crazy and starts killing the people that came with him. But I don't know. Maybe that's something that he just did this time. I, I I'm not sure. This movie, uh, even with the awesome headshots and and everything, it still was confusing all the way to the end.
1: The crew splits up. They're in pairs except for Udo Kier who's on his own. He has his interaction with uh, Dominguez, the local doctor. She tries to provide him with food and you know drink and asks, you know, why are you doing this? He doesn't answer. He just flips over her table of offerings and goes off on his own and he finds a perch where he's going to attempt to snipe some people. Uh, we find out his rule is that he doesn't kill women, so that's why he didn't Take out Dominguez. It's there he learns, though, that two of his uh, crew are already dead. Once they arrive to the village, everyone is holed up. They, they're walking around and they're trying to you know, find people in their own words. They thought they were just going to pull up an open fire and just wipe out this village. So nothing is really going the way they're expecting it to. So the tensions mounting and building, and these mercenaries are kind of just wandering through the town, finding, some, looking for someone to kill. Udo Kier gets bored. He shoots a dog, which that immediately at that point I was like, this guy deserves the worst possible outcome in yep. this movie.
0: Crossing a line,
1: uh, a bridge too far, Mr. Kier. That was the the director's their their ideas like. We gotta make him do something reprehensible, otherwise people are gonna be cheering for him until the end of the movie. <laughs> like, what? What never ceases to make an audience turn on someone? All right, we'll have him shoot a dog. Yeah,
0: even for everything they'd done, uh, Lunga and uh, and Picote, they still couldn't outcharm Udukiere. So they needed they needed Kier to kill a dog, so the tide would finally turn. <laughs> They have
1: a museum there, which is some cool big dick energy shit. With the, This little <laughs> impoverished village has a museum paying homage to their history. And one of the mercenaries wandering through it goes to the weaponry room, where it's basically where they have the weapons on display. And it's kind of this gangster moment where he realizes they're all gone. <laughs> uh, and it's not too long after that that the floor in the museum begins moving and uh, up from under a rug in the room comes Lunga's hand and he's got this fucking polished revolver that God knows what century it came from. And, you know, Udo Kier realizes quickly though, after the gentleman gets offed by Lunga and then a second one does. And I'm not just talking offed like some classy hitmen type shit. They didn't, you know, just put some cyanide in his drink or, you know, just with a silencer <laughs> fucking dude's got a machete, just hacking him to bits while another dude's standing behind him laughing. <laughs>
0: Well, okay but th- that's then, that's the one Lunga kill. He
1: has two. Lunga has two really? kills.
0: Really? Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, count he, him down for me.
1: <laughs> okay. So the way that these fuckers go is the guy who is – mad I don't I don't their their names are all like Jimmy and Sarah. It's just all white people <laughs> names anyways. So the guy who was mad about the kid getting killed, Lunga shoots him in the neck and then in the back and then hacks him up with the machete. Right. That's one. Two Um, when Udo Kier gets bored and turns on his own team, he shoots the guy that looks like a manager of a supermarket, the guy with glasses and the other guy that's with him. I don't know if he's Australian. He has a distinct accent. He runs in to seek refuge, goes into, I don't think it's the museum, but it's somewhere nearby where Lunga is behind the doorframe with a machete. And so as soon as that guy walks in, Lunga chops him down. And then the other two, the other female, and uh, again, you know, Todd.
0: Well, the other one is the guy that killed a kid.
1: Yes, yes, because the he and the other female are just mad. They're like, "God, I, I want to kill something," <laughs> and so she just like recklessly opens fire on the school. There, she's obviously not shooting anything. She just wants to shoot her gun. Uh, sadly, a massive commentary on <laughs> a lot of Americans. And uh, but, but. Shouldn't have shot that way, because then all the local women swing the windows open of the school and just unload. And we get a shot of Teresa with a handgun, too, just fucking going you're like, oh,
0: she's still in this movie.
1: (laughs) The person I thought was the main character came back at the end. All right. And so, yeah, they're dead. I think that Dominguez or somebody set a trap for Udo Kier, because there was that part where he pulled that spike out of his hand, and then, like... His mental state was degenerating after that.
0: Oh, so okay,
1: so so I may be looking too much into that, but that's what I, that's how I read it. Yeah.
0: See, my 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 thinking was that either he always does this, <laughs> like he always turns on his team. That's really the his master plan. Is like I bring these Americans, I sick them on the on the small town, and then I kill them. And I walk away,
1: <laughs> and repeat,
0: and repeat, or or like you were saying, or he got bored. Like he gets there, the town is deserted, and he's like, "Fuck it, I'm, I'm trigger happy," and then he starts killing people that are that he wasn't supposed to kill. But this is, but you're right, there is this close up of him putting his hand on on like a tooth or something like a fang, and then yeah, yeah, it's possible. But then if that's the case, they don't really explain it very well. Uh, no,
1: that's just my thing of like. I refuse to believe that shot was in there for no reason, which it very well could be. You know, it's a possibility. But w- he tries to kill himself here because he realizes it's all gone sour. It's all gone bad. <laughs> and he puts his old World War One relic in his mouth. And that's when the spirit of Carmelita appears. Yeah. To protect the village and also ensure that he doesn't get to take the coward's way out. I think even there's a shot of here, like reaching for her. But then, you know, some dude comes out with a gun. And it's like, the fuck are you doing on my property?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, it makes sense that he would be drugged. Now that you're s- either he was drugged, or the spirit of Carmelita was influencing him all along. Either way, it's very poorly depicted by the filmmakers.
1: Yes, and then. I mean, we don't really have to interpret this for ourselves. It's laid out fairly well. But what happens is Tony Jr. pulls up and he's got this like stretch, not a limo, but obviously like a luxury van that opens it. And there's, you know, six or eight. How many? uh, It's the same number of the crew of mercenaries. It's this nice air conditioned and there's like a a fresh bottle of water in each one of the seats. Mm -hmm. And he shows up and, you know, he's obviously on time. He thinks he's on time for something. And he's like, where are the gringo tourists? As he says, and then the villagers kind of part and you see all their decapitated heads on the step of the church or whatever that building is there. And, you know, he's definitely starts getting a little uncomfortable here. And then Udo Kier, you know, he's being ushered into frame, uh, tied up with the gun pointed at him saying, this wasn't amigo. part of the deal. Yeah. Amigo, Tony. And the guy's just like, oh, how does he know my name? I've never met that guy in my life before. And it quickly becomes apparent that due to the political issues that Baccarat was causing uh, for Tony Jr., he already had had it literally wiped off the map, so it wouldn't exist, and that his plan was to have this crew of mercenaries come in and literally wipe out the town. But one thing he didn't count on was them recruiting Lunga. He, you know, he saw him and he was just like, "Oh God!" And
0: <laughs> I still. I, I mean, okay, so he killed two people, but I still think there was a lot of build up for very little payoff when it comes to... I, I expected Lunga to be like John <laughs> McClane. I thought that Lunga was going to take care of every single one of them. That said, at least he killed two of them. Uh, Pacote, he doesn't do anything in the climax of the movie. We don't see him kill anybody.
1: Well, and they're all... At this, the end here, too, they're all hopped up. It's not opium, but they... Throughout the movie, they take a... Isn't it described as a a psychedelic drug of some sort?
0: Yes. Which I don't know how that enhances their performance in a shootout. I mean, if they were at a rave, I understand. That's what you want, but. It's a party of some
1: sort. But you're downplaying (laughs) Piccotti here. He explains that he's fucked up, and then he just starts slapping Tony, like, and not like hard, (laughs) but just like, you know, paintbrushing him and then fucking with his hair. It's. It's actually really funny. The two funniest parts in the movie are at the end where there's that where he's just fucking with Tony. And then the part where one of um, Lunga's henchmen come out of the museum after killing all his people. And he goes to like whistle by blowing on his fingers. And he looks at his hands and they're all bloody. So he just wipes them on his shirt and then <laughs> blows them that way. But yeah, the, the villagers, I guess they're all tired from all the killing that they've done today. So they <laughs> strip down tony jr and blindfold him and put him on the back of a donkey and they explain that they're just going to take him out in the middle of the desert and drop him in a cactus patch right
0: yeah which i understand why they wouldn't just kill him that guy could get him in trouble he could come back with stronger with, with, with another udokir well no udokir is irreplaceable but with you know the next <laughs> best thing he'll come back with a uh, christoph waltz
1: i'm not arguing with you man i'm just saying what, what they told me here <laughs> Yeah, they're gonna take him out and just drop him. And I mean, which honestly, that's that's worse than getting shot in the head. Just left out in a cactus patch to starve, you know, to death or roast in the sun. But then they put Udo Kier in an underground cellar, and they end up burying him alive. Udo Kier though does get the final line of the movie in an homage to Punisher War Zone. The final line of the movie is: <laughs> "This is just the beginning."
0: Baccarat Two, Kier's Revenge. Well, uh, that was Baccarat.
1: Yeah, and if our conversation seemed as yo-yoing and all over the place as we think it did, that's what the movie's like.
0: <laughs> we did not make anything up. All that happened.
1: All right. So, Julio, are we ready to move this along to our revealing real talk?
0: Yeah, let's go to real talk.
2: So the character is, maybe he likes the power, maybe he likes to kill people, maybe he wants to take over the village maybe he works for the government in brazil maybe he works for the mayor it doesn't really matter if you eat a good soup i don't want to know what's in it if i like, if I like it i don't go to the chef and say so what is exactly in the soup you see there are people and i'm very fortunate that i work with a lot of them they cannot make a bad movie they can only make a movie people don't like. But it doesn't mean that like Gas from Sand or Lars von Twitter cannot make a bad movie. They can only make a movie where people say, not for me. That's okay.
0: All right. We are back for Real Talk. But before Real Talk, we are going to give you the P.P., the patron <laughs> pitch. <laughs> I'm trying, man. I'm trying.
1: I, I appreciate it.
0: Uh, patron pitch this is where we tell our beloved patrons what we have in store for them and where we tell non-patrons what they're missing out on maybe after this little segment you will decide that you want to join our patron family at Patreon.com slash contrarian prime. That's where you'll find all the clips that we cut out of this episode that we didn't make it to the main feed. You will also get our uh, special bonus episodes. This month, we are doing a bachelorette. We're actually recording that as soon as we wrap on Back Row. Mm. We have the recently renamed, used to be Extended Plugs, and now is Contrarians After Hours. Like Alex said it last episode it's the kind of conversations that we had before and after recording back when we used to record in person Mm -hmm. and now we just do it via zoom and then you have the chance of telling us what to watch like paul did in this instance you just demand what you want us to cover on our main feed and you can also demand what you want us to cover on the exclusive patron feed so lots of cool stuff don't want to get anybody too excited but Alex has said that he can after all take pictures of uh, his movie collection mm-hmm. so <laughs> uh, that's that's also coming down the line but uh speaking of Contrarians After Hours Alex what do you have for us uh on the After Hours show uh we'll be
1: discussing Paris, J'aime. is that Portuguese Yes, that's Portuguese. That's my attempt at Portuguesa. Paris de Tem, uh, uh, known as Paris, I Love You for us American speakers, is an anthology movie. I've owned it for a while and just never got around to watching it. Um, which anthology movie, if you're not familiar with that particular phrasing, it's basically a collection of short films. Um, and this one, man, it ran the gamut. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I think there's – is there 20 short films in it? So just kind of break that down and discuss my thoughts on it. And It definitely falls kind of high on the pretension scale, but uh, definitely enjoyed it, and we'll be discussing that a little bit further. Julio, what are you bringing to the table this afternoon?
0: I have a movie called I Care A Lot. You've probably seen it on the on your Netflix mm-hmm. uh, landing page, and it features uh, – oh, God, what's the name of that actress? Gone Girl, um, uh, Rosamund Pike. Yeah, features Rosamund Pike playing another type of psycho. Uh, Hell yeah! It's really good. It has your your favorite, Diane Weist. Uh, yeah, it has Peter Dinklage. It's it's kind of a. They describe it as a black comedy slash thriller. I mean, I guess it's funny in a really fucked up way. But uh, I was I was pretty fascinated by it. It's it's proven to be pretty divisive, uh, and we'll talk about why. I liked it a lot. I actually recommend it. I also watched a documentary called The Imposter," which is from the same guy that directed American Animals, which I plugged uh, a couple episodes ago. He so I want to tell you a little bit about that too. It's uh this sort of a guy that, like this family, the their kid, one of the kids in the family disappears, and then he reappears years later. Uh, they're in San Antonio, and they the kid reappears in Spain, like all across the ocean in Europe. And... Uh, it, this is not a spoiler, but the movie at the very beginning tells you that actually it's not the kid; it's a guy pretending to be the kid, and how that story plays out is it's pretty amazing. So I'll do that, and also Alex, because I told you I would, I will give you the five-minute summary of the Snyder cut because I know that you Joy. can't bring yourself to uh, <laughs> to watch it. But I feel that as a friend, the least I can do is tell you uh, what's in there, what's in those four hours that I you thought will you were joking
1: with the the disclaimer at the beginning presented. No. Before th- yeah, no, I, I saw the screen cap of it. I thought it was you saying something funny, but it...
0: <laughs> it, it, you know, I thought about sending you a picture along with that text, but by then the, the movie, it already happened and I was not rewinding because I had, you know, four hours ahead of myself. So a lot of stuff on uh, contrarians after hours. And like I said, we will be talking about bachelorette, uh, after after we wrap this up so a lot of cool stuff on our Patreon once again, patreon.com slash prime. take a look look at the tiers, see uh, how you would like to contribute if you would like to contribute
1: four different tiers, $1, $3 $5 and $10 obviously with the way these Patreon gimmicks work each level unlocks you something different but for less than the price of, uh, I believe you can just get a big gulp, not a super big gulp but less than the price of a <laughs> Uh, a big bottle of diabetes or a big cup of diabetes you can subscribe to the contrarians so that wraps up pp and julio do you have anything else that you want to whip out and give to the contrarians audience
0: yes actually uh we have a uh fresh off the presses promo for the live stream for the cure 2021 edition yes uh as you we've been bringing up the livestream for the cure 2020 a lot recently because we've been doing All those delightful sex thrillers from the 90s episodes as part of our contribution to the live stream last year. This year, we'll be back. Uh, The live stream for The Cure runs from uh, Wednesday, May 19th to Sunday, May 23rd. Once again, the wonderful Nicholas Haskins is running it. He's getting support from Dan Brennick, from Gerald Morris. And of course, all of us podcasters are going to be there. Our spot is on the twenty second. That's Saturday at four p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we haven't decided yet which movie we're gonna we're gonna do, but we are going to let you guys be part of the process, and mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about that a little more after the promo.
1: My name is Nicholas Haskins, and I'd like a moment of your time to tell you about the fifth annual live stream for the Cure. To do that, I brought along two people whom I couldn't do this event without, Gerald Morris and Dan Brennick. Over the past four years, the live stream for The Cure has raised over $30,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. That contribution is helping to fund research into cancer immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. This year, we're aiming for our biggest goal yet as we try to raise $15,000 in 50 hours on the air. Tune in May 19th through the 23rd as we're joined live by podcasters and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue the fight for a future immune to cancer. Together, we can make a difference.
0: So, stream for the Cure, mark your calendars. Wednesday, May 19th to Sunday, May 23rd. Contrarians on Saturday the 22nd at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, Alex, I kind of floated this idea to you and also teased it on twitter what we're thinking of doing is uh polling our our twitter followers and mm-hmm. listeners uh basically we're gonna give you four options not exactly narrowing down telling you which movies you'll be voting for but we're giving you a hint so we're going to give you four options and you'll be able to vote by the time that this episode comes out the poll should be out there it'll be our our pinned tweet So, your four options are a rotten M. Night Shyamalan movie, a rotten Roland Emmerich movie, a fresh Wes Anderson movie, and a fresh Duncan Jones movie. So, whichever gets more votes, obviously, will be the winner, and Mm -hmm. then we'll reveal which movie we're talking about that's these are all movies that we think we can knock out in uh you know within an hour which is the format of the live stream mm-hmm. uh, and no matter which one wins trust us it'll be a lot of fun if you been there for our, our past appearances in the live stream you know you were there for our basic instinct 2 episode our sliver episode so you know it's a good time and and it's all for a good cause so uh hopefully we'll see you there
1: we just got to get away from the slutty bad movies it's just been too much <laughs> Yes. We're, we're wrapping up next month with Crash, and even that is a little bit different because that still falls a little bit more into the art house genre. But we need to take a break from the the slutty dramas.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we figured this is, you know, Shyamalan, Emmerich, Henderson, Jones. They're they're very different filmmakers. The four
1: pillars of American filmmaking.
0: <laughs> yes. So yeah, it, it'll be it'll be great, and we'll keep Nick on his toes. He thinks that he knows what's coming, but but he doesn't. So go vote in the poll, and like I said, mark your calendars so you're there when it happens, live. Uh, And now, Alex, I think we're ready to go to real talk. All right,
1: Baccarat, the 2019 weird Western film demanded by Filmbuster Paul. And uh, I already kind of embarrassed myself enough in the first portion of this podcast, trying to pronounce the directorial pair's names, uh, but uh, Mr. Philo and then we had Juliano as well. They wrote this movie as well as directed it. And just to kind of. Uh, repeat myself, it did premiere on May 15th, 2019 at the Cannes Film Festival. It uh, premiered in Brazil on August 29th of 2019, France September 25th of 2019. And in its quest to make it to America, unfortunately, uh, the the mark of the beast, the deep state flu, whatever the hell you want to call it, COVID, <laughs> made its way to North America. and <laughs> Fucked things up for everybody. Uh, complete sidebar, but I hope that this movie follows the path of tenant in that once things are resembling somewhat uh, a state of normalcy again that it gets a re-release in the theater based on the fact that it's not for free on any streaming services I think that may be in the cards for it Uh, but I think it is a movie that just based on word of mouth could potentially do a decent chunk of change for itself should it get a theater re-release at some point in time when again things are normal. The new normal. Again, budget-wise, couldn't find too much about it. I did see the box office return internationally. was currently listed at $3.5 million. Julio, the 92% on Rotten Tomatoes rated baccarat. I think it is only right and fair that we Start off by thanking Paul for requesting we go into it blind Yes, uh, because it's a movie that, had I known more about it, may have not worked the same way. And I feel that if I were to tell someone to watch this, I would recommend a similar experience.
0: I agree a 100%. I, I mean, I generally like to go into movies knowing as little as possible, but there are some movies where that obviously pays off even more. And here, the twists and turns, you know, you can only experience that once. And why would you want that experience to be ruined by a plot summary or by uh, a review that says a little too much? Even a review that, would, that wouldn't spoil specific things. Even if they were just setting you up for, oh, you won't believe what happens here, or hey, there's this sort of... Twist, or you know, I I think that that would already be setting me up. Even telling me, "Hey, you need to go in blind," already sets me up for something. So, <laughs> yeah, the least known, the better.
1: Uh, I really, like I said, I, I there was the parallel with Green Inferno that I was half joking about, but I feel it falls in line with that in terms of like a movie trying to comment on the state of political affairs and capitalism and um not even integration, just invading of property and land in South America. The difference being this is a a well-told and competently made movie that doesn't just rely on (laughs) shock value. Um, So I wanted to make sure I established that pretty quick. While I do see a parallel or two between them, uh, I am not in any way comparing an Eli Roth film to anything that Udo Kier has ever been a part of. Um, So I guess just getting into it right away, Julio, we should probably just start in a broader sense of I really enjoyed this movie. How about yourself?
0: I liked it a lot. It's one of those things, though, that uh, I was wrestling with it as it played because, you know, it was just so out there. My brain was working overtime to just basically keep track of what was going on without really thinking too deeply about it. You know, like the, the all the, the subtext and the social political allegories... Like that was not in my mind as I was watching it. I don't know if you, if that was your experience as well. It wasn't until after it was done and I started kind of, you know, picking up quotes and all that stuff that I was like, "Yeah, that was there. You're right." <laughs> I mean, you had the 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 Green Inferno uh, kind of connection ahead of it, so maybe it was easier for you to get in uh, that way.
1: Um, no, I, I'm the same way. Like I just kind of let the movie <laughs> let it play out, as they say. Um, I, I really started thinking about that afterwards, like in the credits. I was like, "Man." it's when it kind of dawned on me man that shit shit like that still happens in south america so but when i was watching the movie i was more just in tune with the characters and the story that they were telling me so the like i said the political uh, aspects of it really just were kind of ruminating with me afterwards the green inferno parallel was basically just a couple of the parts with the the white man just gunning down people with the machine gun and shit it but again, <laughs> that—that's the last I'm going to mention. The Green Inferno. That, that's.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, I brought it up again. You were done with it. <laughs> yeah,
1: we we're getting ahead our of ourselves, Julio. I'm already doing that thing where I trip over my words trying to explain my thoughts on something. So let's uh, let's pump the brakes real quick here. Ninety-two uh, percent means there was still that eight percent of people that submitted uh, reviews that didn't care for it. So what were they saying?
0: I got three rotten quotes from the Run Tomatoes website. So, uh, I'll start with Avi Offer from the NYC movie Guru. He says, almost as awful as Mad Max and The Hunger Games, but just as unimaginative, vapid, and monotonous, despite a suspenseful and intriguing first hour. So,
1: Man, you almost had me there with the dig at Mad Max, but (laughs) lost me. He doesn't
0: say Fury Road, so I wonder if he's talking about the OG Mad Max.
1: The Mel Gibson one? Yeah, Yeah.
0: (laughs) any of the three, I guess. And The Hunger Games, I mean, yeah, but I I wouldn't compare it to The Hunger Games. Oh,
1: no. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, movies made completely for different purposes, different audiences, and with different tones.
0: Abby, what's up, man? What's going on here? (laughs) Uh, Next, Leonardo Garcia Tsao from La Jornada says, there's a lot of music, colors, violence, and incoherence. Full review in Spanish, not in Portuguese. I mean, I don't know about incoherence. There are some plot holes that are not even necessarily plot holes, just some plot issues I had. Mm-hmm. But I don't know about incoherence. And then Alistair Harkness from The Scotsman says, Unfortunately, it's also overlong, unevenly paced, shakily acted in places, particularly the American cast, and hardly original.
1: Uh, mm. I would immediately take umbrage with the unevenly paced because that seems to be explicitly by design. Yep. I mean, it's a perpetual motion machine that just keeps increasing speed. That's it, it. Starts slow. Yeah. If you mean if by unevenly paced you mean it starts slow and then by the end it's just utter chaos, then <laughs> you're technically right. But again, I would yeah. argue that that's all by design.
0: It's a consistent acceleration.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: the The one thing that I kind of agree there is the. Uh, is it unevenly acted, or you know? whatever I, I, you kind of brought it up in Contreras corner. I don't know if that was that was a true feeling or not. But I, I agree with it, which is that next to Udo Kier, the other American killers, they didn't feel up he to snuff. He them. Yeah, yeah. He feels like a character, and they. He feels like he's acting in the movie, and they feel like they're still rehearsing. If that makes any sense.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree that the team of mercenaries is uh from an acting perspective a weak point cuz i i thought the the main villagers of uh Baccaro, i thought that uh Teresa and Picote and even though it's kind of over the top i think that's the purpose with the uh, uh Lunga i i thought they were all great
0: yeah it was just the the mercenaries the, the crazy american killers maybe it's because we we are used we to see, crazy American see killers that too much. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm sorry, I've seen I've seen more believable uh, nut jobs on Fox News. This is nothing. <laughs> so, how how do you how do you feel, Alex? How, what was your experience watching this? At what point did the movie have you? I mean, it took a while, but
1: then when it got to, I'm trying to think of specifically what hooked me. I was still kind of weirded out by the. Um, flying saucer like I was I just couldn't (laughs) figure out where this was going uh but the scene with the the team of mercenaries and after they killed the two the the biker couple the Brazilian biker couple I at that point needed to finish the movie to see where it was going to go and for kind of how oddball some of the introductions of elements in this movie are it kind of felt a little underwhelming that the explanation was that the mayor just hired these people at the same time That Mm -hmm. gives it a sense of realism that kind of reinforces the movie and makes you realize that everything that happened in the movie has a sense of realism to it. It's just the way it was all introduced kind of hit you as oddball. And it was you, the viewer, like trying to piece together what was happening that led your mind to jump to conclusions of what this weird shit and conspiratorial things could be. Uh, but in the end, it was really just a very realistic scenario that backfired in someone's face. Um, the drone looking like a flying saucer, I think that's just a red herring. It's just to make you think that something weird's going on when in actuality it's just a drone, maybe more to confuse the the localers, the villagers. Um, but yeah, <laughs> as far as the movie Hooking Me, it's when the, we were introduced to the team of killers because I was like, well, I have to see this through to see what the hell's going on. And then when the movie was over, I realized like, how much I enjoyed watching it all unfold and how mm-hmm. I would be excited to revisit it again. Um, was there something earlier or something specific that got you to be like, okay, let's, you know, the, the creeping up on the couch and putting your phone down, getting more interested.
0: Uh, yeah. I kind of got hooked earlier, even though it was, I didn't know what the movie was. And that was, you're right. That, that, that is the sequence when, when it's halfway through the movie, when we finally meet the, the mercenaries and we know what's, where we kind of get an idea of what's happening, but before then, I was extremely intrigued by the fact that they couldn't find Bakura on the map, like yes. they they couldn't find it on their tablets or on their computers, because I was intrigued, but I was also worried because I'm like, please don't let this be one of those movies where I'm gonna have to wait two hours for the big reveal to be that all these people are dead and there's just a ghost town, because <laughs> I thought maybe that's what was gonna happen, you know? Don't know where that it, that they're dead and oh uh, okay. I think that they did a pretty good job of kind of like dropping little little hints of uh, this is not what you think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I had a lot of fun just kind of watching this village happen to me. There's a lot of stuff happening here that's not plot related. But it, like when they have their big assembly so they can uh, divvy up the food and the medicines that have been brought... I think that that's really, like, the moment where I'm like, this is, I'm enjoying this. And it, in a way, it's kind of a shame because as the movie keeps going, it goes away from that sort of, uh, you know, the movie's no longer about that, you know, about the interactions between the, the villagers. But at that point, like, I really like that the the doctor that had been really drunk and making a scene in the funeral earlier in the movie shows up and she's apologetic for for having made a scene. And, you know, the, the w- very matter-of-fact way that she explained what the drugs were. Mm-hmm. And kind of, like, leaves them on the table. And she's like, it's up to you if you want to use them or not. It, I don't know. I just, they, the way that they were painting this town and these personalities, I was really getting a kick out of it. You know, the fact that halfway through that, the prostitute that left with the mayor comes back. And she's like, I just want to go rest. It it just felt like a very specific, I guess, way that they were painting the, the town. And I, I really enjoyed it. So, uh, I think that, you know, I became intrigued when the, when the town wasn't on the map. And then I really I realized I was really enjoying the movie when we got to that part with the uh, with the food and the medicine yeah. that was cool. And then you know yeah once Udo Kier shows up and the and the actual movie is explained and that was that was cool. I thought I, I'm not kidding I wasn't kidding. Gunther Corner. I was a little underwhelmed by how little uh, picote ended up I guess factoring in the climax because when you showed me numerous times this guy's greatest hits. I honestly thought that we were building up to a climax that was him versus Udo Kier just having a sort of like one-on-one shootout, or or him and the guy that killed the kid, you know. But his his prowess with a gun never comes into play in the third act.
1: Yeah, I expected him to be like you know containing the beast the entire time, and then in some moment of just absolute chaos, he just unloads and kills everybody by himself. But mm-hmm. um, it just seemed more the story was he was just trying to make an honest living now. Uh, and they pulled him back in. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, Dominguez, Sonia Braga, the doctor character in the movie, got top billing for this on like all the posters. And I- I've never seen her in anything personally that I know over the top of my head, but I know she's a fairly uh, accomplished and resume actress. Were you familiar with her prior to
0: this? The name sounds familiar, but I don't think I've seen her in anything before. That's cool. I guess that is, like, their their big name cameo because her character, I mean, it's important, but she doesn't get as much screen time as, say, like, Picote or maybe even Teresa.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the lady that played Teresa, uh, Barbara Colleen... Teresa, she was great. I That was kind of one of my uh, laments about the movie was I was excited to kind of follow her character along just because she was really... She has a very drawing charisma about her, like her personality just from the beginning. I felt really drawn to her. So when I became aware that it's more of an ensemble movie and that we're not going to be following her directly, it took me out for a few minutes, but uh, that's all to come back around to say I thought she was really good. Now, Udo Kier... As we mentioned ad nauseum in the first portion of this, please, Michael <laughs> in this. I mean, it's just he's just a polished actor, and this is what you get when you put someone in a situation like that. He brings a certain level of class and dignity to the role. I wouldn't say that it was like blow away or anything. It was just him being him, and that's what it made it good.
0: Him being a psychotic killer. Well. <laughs> that's pseudo-cure. Yeah,
1: that, that's, that's his, his day-to-day operation, yeah. He did get kind of like fantastical and whimsical towards the end with all his yelling and, uh, you know, the suicide attempts and whatnot. But I thought he was cold enough in some of his delivery that it worked really well. And he's definitely someone you could buy in a Western-type setting.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, so the idea of these – oh, man. We're going to have to bring him up again, but I'm sorry, Alex. The idea of these Americans coming to this Brazilian town to get their rocks off by killing natives – you know, mm-hmm. that that was... I haven't seen The Grand Inferno, but I've seen Hostel, which I even referenced in Concierge's Corner. Yeah. And I did think a little bit about that, especially the second one, the sequel, where you see it from the point of view of the killers, the people that are going through the process to just basically torture tourists. And here is kind of like, you know, the same kind of people. I guess in, in this scenario, they're not all wealthy, entitled Americans, you know, just spending a lot of money to, to hunt human beings, but... But the idea is kind of the same, that they're these seriously disturbed people that I guess are going to a country full of people that they consider beneath them so they can kill them because it's a, a sport, independent of like what Udo Kier is doing on, on a business level, right? Like the the people that make up his team just seem like your, your average American with a serious problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and uh, that was disturbing. I mean, of course, it's supposed to be disturbing, but... One of the guys has that moment where he tells the story of how he uh, he was really mad because his girlfriend had broken up with him. So he drove up to her house. He was gonna kill her, but she never opened the door. So instead, he drove up to a, to a shopping mall and then to a park. But he never could bring himself to do it. And he was happy because now what that meant was that he was meant to do it here in in Brazil. All that shit was I don't Very know dark. If, if it just yeah I don't know if it just hit me harder now because of you know just everything over the past few years or if it always would have given me the chills as badly as it did in that moment. And, and again, we've kind of made the point. These are not great actors, <laughs> but mm-hmm. in that moment, they didn't even need to be because just the the circumstances that, that their characters were in were just disturbing enough. At the same time, I wonder if, if some people would have qualms with this as being a little too on the nose. What do you think?
1: Uh, In what sense? The, the political message? The white killer Yeah, like...
0: Like, you know, oh, of course, the crazy Americans with their guns are going to come and just shoot the poor people of this Brazilian village.
1: I mean, yeah, I could see that. But at the same time, the movie doesn't really do much to make it seem like the Brazilian villagers aren't fucking vicious killers either. That's true. They hack these people up with machetes. They decapitate them and put their heads on, you know, not a a pike, but they put him on display on the step. It looked like the church they have there. And then they bury a guy alive and send a guy out to starve to death. So it, it definitely shows that there's, there's tears to this shit. There's different levels. (laughs) So that would be my immediate argument to it. And then secondly, I would just be like, well, there's a lot of documentation and history to back up the fact that there are a lot of crazy white people like that.
0: Yeah. uh, I just remember in the museum, they have, uh, they never really, Focus on it a whole lot, but basically, as you see a little these glimpses of their history as depicted in the museum, you can tell that they've kind of, uh, at least I got the sense that they had a history of just overcoming violent encounters. I guess yeah. you know, yeah. And so, so I thought that that was pretty cool. And I kind of mentioned it in the first corner. I know I have it on my notes, and but it's true that the idea that oh well, this time you fucked with the wrong person or you fucked with the wrong village. <laughs> cause they yeah. were more than capable to to fight back viciously. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I guess I can see it as a Western. I didn't really think about it until I started reading the descriptions online. I was, I honestly, for about half the movie, before it was revealed what was really happening, mm-hmm. I felt like I was in a, a sort of a Brazilian version of Lost, where <laughs> there's just a lot of characters and there's a lot of weird shit going on and i wasn't sure that we were going to get answers but i was happy to just follow the questions so that was really more of my my thought like i was going more with the the sci-fi scenario that seems sci-fi fantasy scenario that seemed to be going on and then of course the ghost of carmelita shows up at the end and now that you've kind of opened my eyes to the possibility that maybe udo kier was on some sort of drug then that that seems a lot less metaphysical i guess because You know, South America, like, there's a history of of magical realism. So I'm like, okay, it's not out of the question that maybe what happened, what we're seeing is that this ghost shows up to deliver justice.
1: I actually, I really liked that. That was one of those things that I could see some people, it's one of those types of things if, um, I know there's examples of this for me on just in the episodes that we've done, but the idea of, like, a movie has, doesn't really have you you're kind of teetering whether or not you're invested into what's going on and then this fantastical element happens in the last five minutes of the movie that really will just be the final throw the popcorn in the air just fuck off (laughs) i'm done with this but for me because i was so invested in this movie and these characters and the whole idea and philosophy behind so much of it i thought that was so fucking cool when that happened when carmelita showed up i was just like why not this is where we're at this is great And also because of the way Udo Kier reacted to seeing her kind of made – it kind of just pulled it all together. And I thought that was the logical, illogical conclusion to what had happened. I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah, it definitely ties it all together very nicely. And you know what? Actually, even if it's just that he's on drugs, there is still a sort of supernatural element to it. Because, I mean, for all we know, everything that the movie's shown us doesn't indicate that he's ever even met this woman. So why would he hallucinate <laughs> – yeah, uh, a woman that he's never met. Yeah, e- e- either way you slice it, 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 there's still a little bit of a supernatural element, which I'm perfectly fine with, uh, because the whole movie kind of feels like that.
1: Yeah, I, I know we already talked about we touched on the pacing being by design and everything, but I really can't be complimentary enough to, by the end when they're walking up to the village, like my heart rate increased and like the the starting with the the scene with the little kids which I was mad because I knew it was going to end with a kid getting killed. I was like, man, come on. But obviously then that it heightened motions with the villagers and led to them getting retribution, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the slow burn, this is like a, you put a pot of ramen on, but you're not going to eat it for a half hour, so you just put it on warm. So it takes forever to start boiling. If you're not patient enough, which God knows that I am a – culprit number one of having no patience i mean that's the the idea of the Mattis rule the critiques of it we're just i need to be more patient (laughs) with movies and this you know is two hours and 10 minutes but i think the part of that and the building and the slow burn works so well because like i already said though the villagers the the brazilians are such good actors in this and their performances are believable and captivating enough if the crew of mercenaries had been introduced earlier with the weaknesses that we've called out about them, I may have not have been as patient with this, but they're used sparingly enough, and by the time that we really get to know more about them, the shit's already on, so you know it's going to hit the fan at any moment, so it didn't detract me from that, but I, I, I cannot be complimentary enough of how well-paced this movie is, and some may watch this and say, well, it's drawn out, and I've always given shit to read about his argument that Wolf of Wall Street wouldn't have worked <laughs> if it was a shorter movie, which you and I have both said is asinine, but yep. he's he's entitled to his opinion. Uh, but I guess that's the irony of it, because I would argue that this movie wouldn't work quite as well if it was any shorter than it was.
0: And I think that that's also a good argument to going in blind, because if you describe this movie as, you know, these mercenaries going to town and you know, shit happens and that that colors the way, you know, you'd be more impatient even. You know, even when you describe it as a western you're watching it and the first half of this movie doesn't really feel like that and you're, you're going to be spending half the movie waiting for it to become a western um, when you or you're going to be like and the,
1: me and not to cut you off but like one of the things I want to touch on with the westerns was reading that it was a western like that being the only thing or classified quote unquote as a western, that being the only thing I knew I was trying to force like the western ideologies throughout it I was like oh well that's supposed to represent this and then represent that and I think it's fine to say that some people could interpret it as western I think this is a movie if Brandon Curtis watched it he would write a 30 page article and send it to us about why it, it is a western and you know what have you and his uh, There's horses he, he would yeah, he'd make a tomb on it and send it to us
0: <laughs> uh yeah yeah uh now once Shit hits the fan, and uh, the killing starts in, in force. When the two naked Brazilians, the naked couple, destroy the two killers, like blow that guy's head off, and then shoot that woman's hand off, and then her side. Like that's, uh, I don't know if that's my favorite scene, but I agree with you that it's definitely a a highlight, like a high point in the movie. With it, you said, that's absolutely your favorite moment.
1: I don't know if I'd say that's my favorite moment, but it's definitely the one that I, like, reacted to the hardest and was like, oh, my God, like, an audible and, like, emotional reaction to it because it is, it's so well done because you know by that point that the villagers know that the trouble's coming, but you don't know if this guy knows that they're on his property type thing and then Mm -hmm. how shockingly intense and violent the gun they have is and blows his fucking head off like it all adds up. Honestly, if I had like a fuck yeah moment that I really liked, it's when that dumb broad just opens fire on the school for no real reason and then all the windows <laughs> swing open and then all the women of the village just unload on him.
0: I think I mean I loved both of those moments. I was mystified in a good way by the Udokir exchange with uh with Sonia Braga, I guess you know you got the two, the two biggest names in in the cast interacting, and I wasn't even aware of it. At the the time. righteous kill moment. Yes, yeah, because you expect him to kill her, and I don't think that she knows that he has a rule that he doesn't kill women. So the way that she keeps her cool and just that she has a really cool moment where she puts her coat on and the coat is bloodied and. Uh, it's just such an awesome, you know, because he's trying to intimidate her. And then she puts the the doctor coat on, which is white with a lot of blood on it. And that throws yeah. him. He seems to throw him off. It's it's really cool. And that was a scene that definitely, beat by beat, didn't go at all the way I expected. And, uh, and when it was over, I'm like, man, that was pretty cool. And I don't think that I've seen anything like that before.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we were talking about before we recorded Bone Tomahawk. And I think you could also make some parallels to that as well in the sense of it being uh a modernized attempt at a western and also with both of those movies uh, with this movie and bone tomahawk there's a lot of build and the climax you know it, it harkens back to the days of danny Kaye and the the movies that we watched then where <laughs> climax happens movies over that's what yeah. this movie everyone's decapitated movies over the juice is worth the squeeze is what i'm trying to say of like there's so much that goes into it, and then I feel like that scene you're referencing too is like the eye of the storm or the calm, whatever you know, uh, cliche you want to use, because it is. There's that exchange, but then there's so much quiet tension, and then after that, it's pretty much you know, not that I'm a fan of quoting Boondock Saints, but there was a firefight. <laughs> so to put it put a bow on it all, yeah. The it's a movie that definitely earns its violence. Because I had to be that and introduce a comparison to The Green Inferno in this, if I could put a bow on that argument and solidify that I think this is a vastly superior movie, this movie earns its violence and its brutality and its gore, whereas The Green Inferno is a movie about excessive gore and violence that thinks it's smart enough to put some sort of allegory for uh, colonization and rainforest invading. Whereas this, I mean, there's a legitimate message to it, uh, but again, like I said, that only really came to my mind afterwards. I was just so invested in these characters and this story to see how it played off, uh, played out, and then because of what happened by the end, I was like, "Fuck yeah, that dude deserves to get his head blown off." You know, they're invading this <laughs> these people's land and trying to eradicate them. The dude who plays, I guess, my final uh, thought here. Paul, you done throwing us a curveball that I could be talking about all day. But my final thought I really wanted to get across was Thardelli Lima is the gentleman who played Tony Jr. Mm-hmm. I thought he was just kind of like, just kind of there, like a guy, whatever, that's fine. His range of emotions, though, that he goes through in that final sequence is so awesome. Like, when he gets there, and he's like, well, where is everybody? And then he sees that they're dead, and then Udo Kier is calling his name, and he's trying to be like, I don't know who this guy is. It's not just the, you know, politician caught in a lie thing. It's this guy that now knows he's fucked, and he begins fearing for his life. And something we didn't even talk about, uh, it it is kind of funny, just the way it's shot. His, like, um, bodyguard, or his second, just slowly starts walking away in the background and leaving. (laughs) It's just great and that actor like the the performance there like he knows he's had and he knows he's cooked and the way that dude played that was fucking phenomenal.
0: Yeah, I I honestly at first I was thinking that I didn't need the the that final twist with the mayor. I was perfectly happy with this being Americans paying Udo Kier to take them somewhere where they could just hunt humans. That was like my my stand my initial thought process that's what
1: lillian her initial read on the movie was too
0: and of course as i was watching it i i even i don't think i even got to make the note but i was thinking okay well in to corner i have to mention then that they introduced the mayor for no reason i liked it <laughs> like i, I like what the, you know how he painted the town because it gives you uh, a very good view of that side of you know how cut off they are from the from the outside world and everything else but uh, i was like that's weird that it doesn't have payoff and then This happens and it gives the Tony Jr. character a a purpose, right? And it closes that loop and it's satisfying that way. But also, I think it does, it tells a different story. Like it adds to the, the, I guess, the commentary because it's not just that, oh, well, outside forces came to fuck with this with this Brazilian village, but it was actually a Brazilian politician that brought the outside forces in to benefit himself. So that definitely tells a different story that's even more, I think, resonant. Um, so I appreciated that. Uh, now, my my closing thought, or my closing question for you is, do you think we needed the vague sometime in the future this is happening? Because, uh, you know, the, I hadn't even thought about it until we started talking about it, but the the... I think the biggest example is the the translator, which comes into play once, and you don't really need it, right? And then you have, like, the retina scanner for voters, and, I mean, the, drone is, the drones are things that exist today, so it kind of feels like a, a weird element to introduce and then not really, uh, I guess, exploit more. How do you feel about that?
1: To take it back to uh, another recent patron episode, we talked about in Under the Silver Lake. Basically, we just assumed the time frame was present because of the they had cell phones that are comparable to what we have. Uh, right. But other than that, like it was just kind of like trying to figure out, you know, because he used a VCR and they played like a regular Nintendo, and which of course are all hipster quirks. But my point is, when you have a movie that's already so inherently fascinating and interesting, I think it does a lot to leave the rest of it up to the viewer. So Like That movie is a good example. It's like It Follows, too. Uh, we referenced that on that episode, in fact, if can tie it all back to that director. I can't remember his name. Uh, but that's another fascinating movie in that, too. We just assumed it was some sort of modern time frame because one or two characters have a cell phone at some point in that. With this, yeah, that qualifier several years from now, it seems like... By saying that you're going to do something at some point to make it relatable to the present uh, mm-hmm. or that there's going to be an event, you know, someone's going to say, well, you know, President Trump or um, <laughs> yeah, something like that, something to modernize it and make you understand. I think that would potentially be one of my biggest critiques of the movie is that qualifier shouldn't have been in there because then as a viewer, it lets your brain run amok from well, what time period is this in? Is this even based in like our reality? Is this an alternate dimension? That type of thing, which could lead to another hour of assholes podcasting talking about it, (laughs) trying to figure that out. So my interpretation is what that is meant to say is that this is still rooted in the reality that we know, meaning that it is meant to say to the, the viewer, this shit really happens in the world that you live in. Whereas if they had left that out, eyes mind, and you know they have those little devices and the flying saucer and all that gimmick bullshit, we could be led to believe that uh, this is some alternate timeline or futuristic uh, dystopia type thing. So, what about you though? Does that does that qualifier add distract uh, detract from you?
0: Honestly, I I don't think it was powerful enough for me to remember because. I mean, I know it wasn't because I didn't think about it again until we started talking about it in Contreras Corner. Uh, But then once we were talking about it, I'm like, huh, you're right. That makes sense. Look, this is how crazy the movie is. When the universal translator came up, it didn't throw me off. I was just like, "Okay," (laughs) you know, I, I never even had to, like, rationalize, like, oh, this is happening in the future, that's why they have this technology. I was just like, all right, this is what's happening now, and it makes sense, and that guy had just gotten his head blown off. so That was my main concern. Uh So I don't think it's necessary. I also don't think it has that much of an impact. And I would double down on that and say that, actually, the movie doesn't even need the, the futuristic technology at all. I think that it would have the same impact if you said it was present day and kept it in present day and you got rid of you know the translator and the the retina thing and play it off as, as something that's happening in that's happening today
1: yeah uh, it's that pretty much covers it. it i think because we focused on it so much in the first portion of the podcast it's only natural that we spend a portion of the second half kind of discussing if it adds detracts what have you like i said mm-hmm. It does not detract. It could only have added more had they excluded it, and that's just my opinion. Uh, but in reality, it really doesn't do anything to take away from the movie. And like you said, if that's what you're focused on, then this movie's washed over you completely. <laughs> uh, or you're too desensitized to understand like how fucking crazy what's going on is. Uh,
0: so, so what's your score? Uh, mm,
1: and some of those white people really do suck. So I can't decide if I want to give it an A minus or a B plus I'll go with a B plus because I feel like there's some of that acting is kind of a deterrent. Uh, but I'll give it a B plus with the, the note, the see me after class note that says that grade could change after revisiting.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm similarly, I'm going to give it four stars. I, I think it's really good and I would recommend it to anyone, but I also, I have a couple caveats, uh, the, mainly, yes. The, I, I think the acting is a little weak on with those people. That it, they all get speaking parts, and they all get each of them gets at least one moment to, in quotation marks, shine. And then what they end up doing is kind of highlighting that they're not quite up to snuff. So yeah, four stars.
1: All right, Paul, you done good, boy. I appreciate. Uh, we appreciate you bringing uh, back row across our table and demanding that we cover it it led to an interesting discussion and one for the books now as i'm gonna have to buy it you know once (laughs) i mean fucking sleepy joe sent me that money i gotta do something with it can't just let it all go to savings
0: (laughs) god forbid
1: yeah so on deck coming up next our following episode will be our annual wrestlemania bonus episode in previous years we have covered such timeless classics as Ready to Rumble, No Holds Barred, and, uh, of course, the Glow documentary. Uh, I have saved this one for a while just because I, I knew it would be uh, an undertaking, and Julio has pushed for this one for a while, so we're finally giving in as WrestleMania 37 welcomes back fans to attend WWE events uh we will be welcoming contrarians fans to join us as we discuss the 2008 academy award nominated film the wrestler
0: Uh, mickey rourke making his contrarians debut is that right
1: mickey rourke marissa tomei evan rachel wood the necro butcher they're all here (laughs) That's on deck. That'll be uh, for uh, WrestleMania week, as it is now. It's not even just one fucking night anymore. Vince McMahon has to have his fingers in every pie. and But that's what's coming up next. And then following that, we'll finally conclude our uh, dramatic, sexy uh, thriller arc.
0: Yes. With David Cronenberg's Crash, which you saw, Alex. Posted on Twitter. I also sent it to you. I bought the Criterion, as promised.
1: Yeah, you also bought the Marriage Story one, so it's like the <laughs> principle of eating an onion ring and a carrot at the same time. They just kind of cancel each other out.
0: Yeah, so that's that's coming up next. Uh, let's go to perennial plugs.
1: As always, we'd like to thank the Festive Years, who provide our opening and closing tracks. They open us up with Last Stand, Take Us Home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs.
0: Our logo and all the graphics on our webpage and our Patreon and our upcoming merch are from our friend Hans Rodgieser. He has podcasts, he has zombie novels, he has other novels as well. Um, you can check out all his work at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S.pe. On that webpage, he also wrote about the latest Halloween movie inspired by our Haddonfield Nights nice arc, which he recently listened to. Uh, that made him watch all the Halloween movies, oh, yeah. uh, including the ones that we hadn't covered, and uh, that led him to just write about them because that's what the contrarians do—we inspire people. That's so, right. <laughs> you can check out uh, that article on his webpage as well as uh, all links to all his other work. He has three podcasts: Nación Combi, <clears throat> Contante y Sonante, and Marginal. Uh, they're all available in every podcatcher, and then a whole bunch of books. One of his most recent ones is a uh, zombie anthology. Speaking of anthologies, Alex, it's short stories written by authors that live in the uh, Peruvian region that the story takes place. Uh, Hans, thank you for everything you do for the podcast. It's very much appreciated.
1: And Miss Zoe Perez, customary thanks go to you for helping curate and facilitate our social media game with uh, our Instagram account. If you haven't already, go to Instagram and follow us at Contrarian Prime, as well as our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Contrarian Prime. We appreciate all the work you do, creating graphics and really helping us uh, grow our social media game. So Zoe, thank you as always. With all of the customaries out of the way, that is going to conclude this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.